Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. So what's the story of this podcast? Um, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you need to know? What I don't, don't know anything. You don't know anything. Uh, All right. So we, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle that people make it and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do all kinds of remarkable things at a place called Freethink. I am trying really hard to maintain a high energy level, positive, enthusiastic attitude because I've had food poisoning for most of the last 36 hours. Still not at quite 100%, but I'm here. I'm in the room. I'm in the building. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I am flanked by one Matt Welch, who is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Thrilled to have you here in the building, Matt I Welch. understand that drinking spiced rum on an empty stomach is pretty, <laughs> it's particularly good palliative. It's medication, obviously. Yeah. Um, our very good friend Michael Moynihan, HBO's Vice News Tonight, is over in Europe, in Deutschland or something like that. No. That's not right? Finland? Finland. Finland. Yeah. Finland. Yeah. It's, it, We're not yeah, supposed to expose him. Expose him. Yeah. Oh, we're uh, not? He's talking to cutouts over oh, there. Oh, can I not say that? That's fine. Well, we have all those beautiful images of him wearing blackface for the holidays, because that's what they do over there, right? I think. It's not, is that wrong? I, I, I don't want to step on their culture. I'll post them to Twitter right now. Everyone can, can judge for themselves. Um, the other voice that you're hearing is our very good friend, Anthony Fisher, who's the politics editor over at Insider, which is wonderful to have you here, yes, Anthony Fisher. Glad to be here. Glad to see you as well. Um, and we have a guest in the room, and we're probably going to have to break halfway through because we only have him for a limited time, uh, but it's Mr. Ben Smith, who is the editor in chief at BuzzFeed News. That, that's correct. That's yes? correct. Wonderful to have you in the room with us. Thank you for having me. Having thanks me for with, here thanks with for you and us. breathing your potentially infected air. No, no, no. It was definitely food. <laughs> Do you get like on those, uh, like, uh, uh, how old are you? Uh, 42. 42. So you're, you're a little bit old for those, like, uh, 50 powerful media people under a certain age. Do you still make those lists? You know, when I started at BuzzFeed, the, the Times did a piece calling me the boy wonder of BuzzFeed, <sighs> and it was the last time in my career <laughs> that somebody – and people point immediately pointed out, like, well, like, guy in his late 30s becomes the editor <laughs> of a thing. It's not actually – like, that's, in fact, the median age. Yeah. Um, you know, like, yes – People like Jeff Zucker and Jody Cantor had jobs in their tw- like that in their twenties, and but and 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 whenever my reporters, some of whom are quite young, get sort of like not taken seriously for being young, I always tell them like, "You will miss this when it stops happening." <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you miss being the boy wonder? I definitely miss people being like, "Oh my god, are, are you know are you?" I, I looked really young in my twenties, and people would say, oh, "Are you the intern? Where's the reporter?" Yeah, and yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah, I suppose that that part is nice, but I don't know if I want to ever be called the boy wonder of anything. Yeah, you just, I just don't like being called boy. The yeah, boy wonder is that, a little weird. That's true. Yeah, that's that's also true. This is some special resonance for me. Um, well, Ben, since we have you here, there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, Buzz BuzzFeed News in particular, being a part of BuzzFeed, which is probably the best funded new media outfit, using the word new with all sorts of weird qualifications and asterisks beside I, it. I would say best, not just best funded. Yeah, well, <laughs> perhaps that well, as I mean, well. a lot of people like Yahoo raised and spent a lot of money. Yeah, perhaps that as well. more than us. Perhaps that as well. But but Yahoo didn't begin as a media outfit. Sure. Yahoo yeah. Had yeah, of our generation. Yeah, a different media, sort yeah. of mandate. Um, it's interesting to talk to you right now. The second year of the Trump administration, there's a great many things happening in the world. You wrote a piece about insider political political journalism and how it's perhaps time for things to change, which I think captures a lot of the interesting sea changes that are taking place on the journalism landscape. Um, And also, very recently, you guys won a court victory 
related to the publication of the dossier, which this this was like two years ago now. That's right. Maybe you could give us a little bit of context about where things stand with the court victory. I'm sure there are things that you all still can't talk about because there's some ongoing issues there. But what happened there and what is important about that court decision that folks ought to know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when, when we published the dossier, we got which we published it, you know, we had had it. A lot of publications had had it. I think the Times may have had it since the summer. We had it since December. And this was mid-January. Um, of 2017. Of, of, of 2017. Trump had been elected, but had not been sworn in yet. And it had become clear, you know, I think if you were in sort of journalism circles, in politics, in government, in intelligence, everyone was talking about this thing. And, mm-hmm. and you could even see that people were making decisions based on it, the way Lindsey Graham, John McCain positioned themselves vis-a-vis Trump in with in those early days, there was something weird going on. Yeah. And if you, and, but if you weren't, if you didn't have the document, it was hard to know what it was. Um, and, and so we were, you know, both chasing all the specific allegations in the document, some of which since then have been borne out, some of which as we wrote and we published it unverified then unverified Mm now. Um, and then when CNN reported that it had been briefed to two president, two successive presidents, of the United States, I think Comey talked recently about how he'd walked this into Donald Trump's office and talked to him about it. That to me, I mean, it's hard to think of a higher bar of public interest than being briefed to two presidents of the United States. So for us, that said, all right, this is something that the government is relying on in various ways. It's classic public interest. And so we published it. But the uh, at the time of publication, you didn't know that Comey detail, right? You just we, kn- No, we didn't know the you Comey knew detail. chatter. You knew Comey. No, we knew that it had been briefed to the both presidents. We didn't oh, you know- knew that already? Yeah. Okay. See, that was sort of the trigger for us to publish it. CNN reported that. Got it. Okay. Um, that 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 afternoon, and we then decided to publish. So this is controversial. It blows up. Uh, and one of one of the individuals mentioned in the dossier, um, or three three people actually, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's lawyer, sued us. He subsequently withdrew that lawsuit, and 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 some Russian businessmen also sued us. And the one this lawsuit that was most that, that people have been watching, the one worth watching, um, uh, businessman who had been mentioned in the dossier sued us in federal court, and. Um, I mean, I, and the ruling this week from a conservative Republican judge in in Florida, this very thorough, well thought out ruling, you know, on the law, not on mm-hmm. details, but on the law said, you know, in a very straightforward way, journalists are allowed to publish documents that the government, you know, that are effectively public documents. We were allowed to tell people what the government is doing. And that's the, that was the context for this. And so that was, I think, that was the best possible outcome for us. And his claim against you was? Was that, was that, um, it was a defamation case. And, the, you know, the countervailing argument is, I mean, it's true in when, outside public interest, outside various other categories, you can't just rep- when you republish something, you are you can be liable for it. That's not true if the thing is a public interest, if it's a public document. It's the same reason, you know, like reporters every day publish police, talk about police reports, right. talk about indictments, right. even though they haven't verified those allegations. Lots of talk about indictments these days. Constantly. Yeah. Because um, that's because that's covered under as a as a public document. Looking back at that now and the way that the Steele dossier is still part of especially kind of the political conversation around or the politicized conversation around the the Trump-Russia investigation, um, uh, do you think – how do you assess your publication of it, uh, it, its role in that thing? In the yeah. kind of, I mean, you hear every time I uh, cross over into Fox News, um, you know, people are talking about the dossier in a way of like, uh, uh, you know, this is this is the the basis of the investigation and it's flawed. The it's the 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 fruit of a poison tree yeah. and this kind of stuff. Did you, by publishing it, add to that sense? What's your assessment of of where your publication, how it affected the conversation and even the legal cases that we've seen since yeah. then? 
I mean, I don't know how it affected the legal cases, except to the degree that it was genuinely informing the investigators. It was pointing them where to look. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, the FBI, in fact, used it. On, you know, and, and, Devin, and Devin Nunes really played a crucial role in establishing our defense by showing that it had been the underlying document in the FISA warrant. Again, like All a right. very obvious mm-hmm. government use of this document. Um, the and by entering that into the public record, it had been reported, but it's important legally that it was it became a legal fact through through Nunes. Um, I mean, I think that the to me looking back, the you know some reporters, some at our shop, probably some some of you guys had written in the summer of twenty sixteen about these curious elements of a Russian attempt to support Donald Trump and interfere in the twenty sixteen election. But when Christopher Steele started writing this in the summer of 2016, the notion that there was this broad-scale, coordinated effort, on one hand to infiltrate Donald Trump's campaign, on the other hand to support him on social media, certainly wasn't conventional wisdom. It, it, in fact, sounded pretty grandiose and crazy at the time. Now I think there is a lot that remains totally un, you know, unproven, and there are crazy allegations out there every day on Twitter, and there are conspiracy theories, and there are real conspiracies. It is obviously true, the two things I said before, that there was a broad Russian effort to influence Americans on social media and that there was a Russian effort to infiltrate Donald Trump's campaign. That's no longer controversial. The arrests have been made. Official bipartisan reports have been issued. The broad outline, and this isn't, you know, this isn't to say every word in it is true, and this isn't a full vindication of the dossier, but I Mm -hmm. think it is a vindication of our publication of it, that this was an important government document and that the conversation it opened was about something obviously very real. Although even if everything had turned out to be phony baloney, uh, the fact is that the government was still using yeah, we, this. We, we, in have, a we had every way. right to publish it, Absolutely. I think, no matter what. But that doesn't mean you publish everything. I think, yeah. You know, but I but but I do think that you know the question of whether was you know were there these large scale Russian efforts to influence the campaign to you know to help Trump in public and to infiltrate his campaign in private? I mean, obviously, yes. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting about the dossier and what sort of connects the story uh, about the publication of the dossier at BuzzFeed to this piece that you wrote about insider political journalism and it being time for it to go away is that episode in the the very beginning of sort of the Trump administration, I think, painted a picture of journalism in transition to something else, whatever that thing is. I'm not quite sure. Just being very introspective, a lot of... In internal criticism in some cases about you what know, we ought to be publishing and how we ought to be approaching the news. What, what do you think about sort of those two things? So I want to I actually add an, amend the thing I just said or add an asterisk to it and then answer your question. The asterisk is a, I, I said a version of this before and a very smart reporter for the Daily Caller, Chuck Ross, who's broken a lot of news on this, said on Twitter, now this, of course, this is what dossier defenders are now saying, that it was broadly true. Uh-huh. Forget the details. And that's not what I'm saying. Uh-huh. There were also details. Some of them, you know, put, had led to Paul Manafort's arrest. Some of them very specifically, for instance, around social media and Bernie Sanders supporters were were specifically true. There are lots that are unverified. There's lots that remains to report out. But I just I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't before, suggesting that this was the only... Before uh, answer the other part of the question, since you brought up Chuck Ross, he's reported, I think, this week that... It was John McCain or John McCain's shop that definitively leaked the dossier. Uh, and I think they, that he's reporting, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, that they leaked it to you. But you guys are saying that you didn't? Or what's the status? Oh, you know, I, there there is um, some – right. The, there were details in court filings that revealed uh, that an aide to John McCain, David Kramer, gave the dossier to a number of people. 
Okay. And th- I think this had been reported, but it was now revealed in court documents. And and in those court, including people, you know, people, including a bunch of Republican congressmen, a bunch of people that, including us. Um, so that's that's where you got it from, uh, definitively. Like you, you and, know, I hate talking about sourcing so much that even though this may or may <laughs> not be in court documents, good, I'm allergic to it, and okay. I, I won't comment. Go go straight ahead where you were going out elsewhere uh, with uh, Camille's uh, question, yeah. if, you, if you recall. Yeah, no, so I do, and you you had asked about whether it's um whether this was sort of a pivotal moment or sort of part of a transition to the way journalism worked. I you know it's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot looking back, and I think that there are these questions around you know how do you how do you cover Donald Trump and do mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. do the old rules apply. Or, you know, do the old rules apply? Is the situation so different that the old rules apply differently? I mean, those are kind of the two versions of the question. And I do think that there was a one of the reasons we were criticized, one of the really illegitimate reasons, I think, that we took a lot of criticism from the media was that there was a sense of, you know, this is the president's honeymoon period. We have a rule in this country that you don't say mean things about the president between the election and inauguration. That's just a rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and we broke it. And come give this guy a chance... And and I think that's an idiotic rule, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. not. It's just not our job. I think it's to, also not a rule, and not, and not a real rule. Yeah. Also, and, kind and of a limp, never, a limp criticism because when no, I read and, the dossier, it didn't it didn't strike me as a massive indictment of the president. It, it struck me that this is it. It's interesting to actually be able to read the full context that people are sort of invoking in this shadowy right. sort of way no, and I think you could read in order that, to fill in the blanks. And, and a lot of people read that document and said, this is what people are talking it's about? This is insane. This makes no sense. Like, come on, move on. I mean, and yeah. there were different ways. But people were arguing about it without having seen it. But in any case, I do think that – but there was also this sense, this very traditionalist sense of like we're the gatekeepers. We'll tell you that there are these shadowy allegations. But if you – God forbid you look at them and they scald your eyes out, right? right. Like you should be protected from these like genuinely quite – you know, lurid things. Pretty, like the Pretty scintillating. And, yeah. and I think, you know, there's sort of a convergence of these kind of traditionalist impulses around that. But I think more broadly, you know, I think there was a sense that, well, let's see, two more things. One was, you know, maybe if, if you, if the media wouldn't be so mean to Donald Trump and if you, and if the media would sort of pull punches, maybe he would stop being mean to us. I've heard some of that. There was a, you know, this is giving Donald Trump fodder to attack the media as though his attacks on the media were rooted in, what the media was doing as opposed to his career long, you know, New York, like his MO for his entire career sure. of constantly Just disparaging creating people say theater, anything negative about att- working sure. the refs, you know, pretending you to be his play, own PR playing, playing this very specific game with the media that had nothing to do with reality. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was, you know, that, that there was this total, totally naive idea that that was, that, that, that you should, that that was the right approach. Um, yeah. And, th- and then I do think broadly, you know, there's this sort of very traditional kind of gatekeeper aspect and then a newer impulse toward transparency and toward sharing things with your audience. I think if you're, particularly if you're a new brand, the way, you know, in a world where people don't and shouldn't trust everything they see on the internet, the way you gain people's trust is not by saying, we have a secret document and we're not showing it to you. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's by saying, here's the thing we're talking about. You can look at it yourself. Feels like you mentioned in your piece, which is interesting, I commend the people to read it, uh, being on the other end of criticism from the press critic, uh, Jay Rosen, from I believe NYU now, oh, but uh, God, long, long time. <laughs> We're friends now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've been uh, friendly with Jay Rosen for a long time. We agree and we disagree on, on plenty of things. Um, 
uh, I will uh, run the risk of his wrath by uh, caricaturizing his position. Um, but he frequently uh, puts it that, look, the Republican Party and Donald Trump in particular and conservatism in particular is waging a war on the press. And the press has to understand that it can't react on that by saying we're above it all. We can't take sides that they need to go in there. And this is where I'm, I'm badly uh, misparaphrasing him, but like call the lying liars, the lying liars. And and as an adjunct to that, you see a lot of Twitter chatter. Like People get so upset when there's a tweet from a news organization that says Trump says and then quote and that quote that that he says contains possible or probable uh, mistruths. And then they, they don't call it out in the tweet and they freak out. Um, where do you stand on all that? I, I have some yeah. feeling that that uh, that people are in going to this new era are considering themselves to be oppositional uh, uh, in in the their approach to Trump in a way that kind of concerns me. But I'm just curious. You right know, now. I, 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 I agree with you. I think I mean, I, I there's a lot that I admire that Jay does, including this new project, The Correspondent, that he's working on, which everyone should give money to. But I think Jay is basically a stopped clock. He was, you know, when when I was covering Mitt Romney, he was sent. He was writing furious nine thousand word blog posts that we were not revealing that Mitt Romney was waging a cynical war on the press, and and now he is accurately attacking people who do not realize that Donald Trump is waging a cynical war on the press. But does that, that does not mean that Mitt Romney was waging a cynical war on the press? In fact. I think the contrast is instructive, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of the toxicity around Donald Trump grew out of elements of the Republican Party and of Mitt Romney's party and Ronald Reagan's party and, you know, Abe Lincoln's party, whatever. But there's obvi- but, but Trump is, a, is something new and is different pretty, in a pretty substantial way um, in his – and I'm not a particular fan of access journalism, but the core convention of access journalism – that did hold with George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, conventional Republicans who, you know, there's a lot of negative things you can say or you can love them, which is that if you get the access, they will tell you the truth most of the time, a lot of the time when you sit across the table from them in an interview. Trump will lie to your face and which is, you know, maybe that there's elements of that that liberate you from the bullshit of access journalism. But the idea that, but, but I actually think a lot of arguments that were basically wrong in the pre-Trump era are right now, and the people making them are now saying, see, we were always right. Now, you say that, and and it's interesting. I think in this piece you talk a lot about, um, and I'm referring again to the piece about how you created inside political journalism, just so folks have some context. Um, Just just to amend, I was caricaturing Jay's yes. pieces. Yeah. I don't. I didn't Apologies. do a word count. Apologies. But you no, can, you weren't search, claiming claiming so, credit with the but search, superhero search, search on. my name on his, yeah. his old blog. <laughs> I remember pulling over to a rest stop in Iowa once to write a furious email. <laughs> it definitely sounds convincing, the, yeah. the word count, but, as someone who consumes his... But there's a, a line in there where you talk about what seems pretty clear now, and it's the one thing that's clear is that the new political journalism has to be built for a moment of crisis, not stability, something that citizens of less happy democracies are more accustomed to. And I thought a couple of things when I read that. I thought, one, about just sort of the, the actual historical context. Like the 1990s began with the L.A. riots. The 1990s end with the impeachment of a president. The, the notion of sort of a happy democracy, if there was any period in which that would have been true, it would have been the go-go 1990s when, we, when it was the economy stupid and so not foreign anything policy. Anything more self-indulgent and stable than impeaching Bill Clinton. <laughs> that was something we did for fun because we were bored. Yeah, that's right. It was a luxury but, good. But, yeah. but, I, but I do think there's, there's, two, there's two things about it. One is just the fact that I think there's always been some, a bit of apocalypticness yeah. in our politics and a 
sensibility of us versus them that in retrospect always seems a bit more fuzzy and kind when yeah. we're looking backwards That's at true. it. Um, but the ferocity the, of, the, of the Clinton era. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And the ferocity of the 1970s and the 1960s, yep. which I didn't live through, but yeah. I've read some things and it yeah, sounds pretty crazy. A lot more violent. There was violent sure. domestic terrorism. Genuine violent yeah. domestic terrorism. And hijacking um, in like many cases. Basically daily. Yeah. yeah. But, I but what those. I think about, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not me, um, but I do also think about the current moment and the degree to which Donald Trump may have a point when he talks about fake news. And it's, the number of, and I don't know how to quantify this, I could look at sort of Pointer, the Pointer Institute's report from last year, but the number of rather egregious journalistic errors and missteps um, when there are reports about uh, uh, Russians penetrating a nuclear power plant um, in the United States or something along those lines, or uh, journalists who end up getting uh, long suspensions from their job for reporting on things related to the Mueller investigation that turn out not to be true. There's the Der Spiegel guy, right, this week? Or? And, this, and this week, yeah, we've, we've had some other things who as well. But this CNN is, journalist of the but year. I think some of those things what, what, are actually a I little mean, different. I'm, uh, what I mean, I'm referring what, what to specifically the... is, is the fact that in the Trump era, the, the turn towards sort of crisis journalism has, I think, led towards led to some excesses that have caused some errors and that I think have probably led journalism be a little worse than it was. And I often worry and, and talk about a lot here the degree to which our calibration towards this being a moment of crisis like, might actually be kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where we see things that we might have seen in other contexts and turn them into crises. This week, the president decides to withdraw from Syria, and that is suddenly a crisis when, had it happened under the previous president, perhaps even in exactly the same way, many of the people who are up in arms today and somewhat hysterical might not have much of anything to say. Okay, I disagree with every word you said. Like <laughs> That's including good. Including the I love conjunctions. To um, the... <laughs> So I think you're, although except that I do think that you're right I knew in what you said back. before about the the sort of glory days not being so good, and particularly for lots of marginalized people, for you know for people whose American power was affecting outside the United States, there were crises all over the place, uh -huh. and that were not felt in official Washington official journalism. Um, the other glory days that aren't real are the glory days of journalism when people didn't make horrible mistakes, when there weren't plagiarists mm -hmm, and fabulists. Mm -hmm. Social, the internet and social media are incredible at catching people, and that's a wonderful thing, and that you can't get away with bullshit anymore. I mean, a whole part of the convention of newspaper journalism used to be you had a graph that said who, what, when, where, why. You had a quick summary of the story, and then you had a paragraph called the nut, nut graph in which you just wrote some bullshit you made up. Uh, with, like, with like an unsupported thesis, and then you put in a quote. Um, you get a quote from the sociology professor yeah, who agrees with yeah, you. I mean, and then if, yeah, you find a sociology professor who agrees with you. I mean, like, journalism has – there's been tons of terrible journalism through the entire history of the country. We see it more clearly now. One mm -hmm. of the great faults in that journalism is buying into a narrative, seeing what you expect to see, seeing what your readers want you to see. That's always been a, a risk and an issue. I mean, I think I'm really proud of our coverage of – Russia, be, the Russia investigation, because it's been totally, it's been very rooted in documents. It's been very rooted in, you know, real sourcing, real information, not a lawyer says, a witness says, you know, some, something. And this, that, is Jason and this is Jason Leopold's Leopold and Anthony work, Cormier's which work. Which, incredible. 
Yeah, which, you know, we got the underlying documents of the Trump Tower Moscow deal. Yeah, that is some a, great that, that was a real thing. Yeah. And I just and I, and I then just totally reject the idea that you had other candidates who were negotiating real estate deals with the hostile power that was secretly helping them in the summer. Was that suggest the did election. I suggest that? No, I mean in the sense no, that this, like Rand Paul uh, pretty much <laughs> suggested that. No, no, like, no, yeah, no, but in the sense that this isn't unusual, this isn't a particular crisis. The Syria right. withdrawal is the same for sure. In some ways, he's basically fulfilling the promise of Obama's foreign policy. Fulfilling a promise he's made repeatedly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but the he said but, he would but, do as but, recently but, as but March that, or May. But that he did it impulsively on a phone call with the president of Turkey, and now and 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 our allies are quite likely going to get slaughtered as a result in his death and his and his defense secretary quits in a huff. That was is unusual. Yeah, well, I, I think withdrawing from uh, military theater where we've been for 17 years is by definition unusual. And it seems to yeah. me that there's almost certainly a great deal of institutional resistance yep. to making these sorts of changes that the president has talked about for a very long time and that many Americans seem to want. That it happens in this particular way, am I, am I pleased with it? I don't know. Um, I'm pl- I am personally pleased that it's happening to throw my own yeah. perspective into it. But yeah, maybe you'd prefer a president who impulsively gets you out of wars to a president who impulsively gets <laughs> you out God. of war. Dear God. Is that a, is that a possibility? <laughs> I mean, is that, that, a that seems like a legitimate point of view. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely my point of view. I'm going to embrace it now that you've stated it. Uh, one thing that was of interest in, in your piece talking about uh, kind of like rejecting the sports metaphor, like you're, you're the, the kind of uh, Mark Halperin – the note, you know, the gang of 500 or 100 or whatever. Politico, where I came up. Politico. Yeah. But uh, I wonder how much, when you look at back at that, um, it is that you, me, anyone who covers politics, I don't didn't cover it in the, in the political style way, but in, in, in my own way, misunderstood why people root for teams and vote for people, right? Uh, which <laughs> is to say, like, for me, the, the, the great humility of, of Trump the first time I saw him speak was uh, in uh, at Freedom Fest in uh, Las Vegas in July 2015. You can find that was my favorite Freedom Fest. Uh, were you there? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you describe it as a seizure? Uh, yeah, like his his speech isn't uh, isn't a speech. It's it's more like a series of seizures. Um, I, I you Sounds know about right. My uh, my take on this uh, headline was like the idiocracy candidate, which is now cliche. Uh, but I think I was one of the first to get to the cliche. Uh, but uh, I looked at that and I thought there's no way in hell that any country that I recognize would sit through an hour of this, 20 minutes of this and come to any conclusion except for now. Come on. Are you crazy? No way. I'm asking that badly, but I think yeah, you can no, kind I of see what where I'm mean. going with this. I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of different things going on there. Like I don't think the people who were so passionate about Donald Trump and turned out to vote for him were that passionate about Mitt Romney. Some, you know, some right. people were that passionate about Barack Obama. A lot weren't. You know, I mean, I think it's, there is more passion in American politics than there was 10, 15 years ago. For you know, and, and that's a re, that's a substantive change, not a not a sort of not one that has to do with the journalism. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I just think that where there were a lot of people, certainly including people who were excited about, you know, and really in love with Barack Obama, who were eager, who to some degree embraced the sports meta or consumed it a bit like sports, weren't weren't offended to see it treated like sports and were rooting for their side and cared a lot. But maybe didn't see Mitt Romney as, as a threat to the country and to their fundamental values. Um, and I think in this climate, people are offended when you treat it. There's some substantial portion of your audience that is offended 
when you treat it that way and repelled because they actually feel that a lot is at stake and in a way that there was always, I mean, a lot of people always felt that way and, and, but, but more do now. So as part of your critique that you kind of agree with them that, that, Hey, hey, that there is more at stake than the way that we're treating it. There was always a lot at stake. I think I'm not sure I agree or disagree. I Mm -hmm. think that I'm just describing a change. I, I, I would agree with that. Always, always a lot at stake. And I, I, for one, have always been someone who's bristled at the use of sports metaphors. And I've always been uh, my role, like, being involved in political journalism and as a part of the commentariat, I've always felt really, really awkward about the horse race aspect of politics. And I've never um, been friendly towards it because I've always thought the stakes were a lot higher than people were. Uh, and were also like you can get money by betting on the horse that comes in third place, which that just doesn't, I mean, That's it's true. always struck me as inapt. In this context. Yeah. Um, ben, I, I wanted to ask something else about um, shepherding the the newsroom and I know that it's something that BuzzFeed, as one of many sort of new large media organizations, but I guess all media organizations are doing this now. Um, but in terms of the way that staffing happens, there is a lot of emphasis on sort of diversity and representation these days. And I've certainly seen reports from BuzzFeed and The New York Times and various other organizations. And generally speaking, like we're talking about like demographic characteristics, it's race and it's gender. So there is a certain ratio of people who happen to look like me who work within a publication. And I am one of the very unusual souls, perhaps, who finds that like really strange. And I understand the instinct and I get the goal of trying to achieve representative diversity in that way. But considering my perspectives aren't a function of the way I happen to look, um, I wonder if the emphasis on diversity in that way is something that if there ought to be an equal emphasis on diversity from sort of an intellectual standpoint, I don't know how many like weirdo libertarian types are working at BuzzFeed, oh my God. which might Fair be number. a description of me. <laughs> and, and I, and I you would know, a pretty good number. And I, and I, you know, I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it is something, you know, I've always in particular, sought to hire from the conservative political press. I think it's you get a lot of good reporters there. But not conservative. Libertarian conservative is different. Different, but over. I understand. I mean, yeah, like I'm talking about the same six publications here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think intellectual diversity is really important. Okay. I think it's, I mean, it's also, I also make a point of, I mean, I also don't grill people on their political views and their, and more specifically, it, our HR department and there's not federally mandated reporting mm-hmm. on people's political views on and on other like the things that we report, the kinds of diversity that we measure are the things that are actually reported, you know, by human resources departments. So these are often like public facing documents that are generated in yeah. order to demonstrate our concern for this particular issue. And once I don't we think it's, our, this it's ratio, to demonstrate our concern. For me, we, we report them publicly because say because it's the only, and this is actually kind of a tech industry truism, but it is true, is that if you report them publicly, you get held accountable to them. Mm-hmm. And it is actually a way to force yourself, you know, it's just, it's a mechanism for pushing yourself. If, if, if you have a goal, you say you want to reach the goal, you're much more likely to do it if you say that in public. I mean, but if, if we're going to do it with like phenotypic Ish. traits, like, should we do something comparable? Well, I think there's this, I mean, there is this interesting problem right now, which is that you know, I think I've hired a fair number of people who I think of as coming from conservative backgrounds. You know, I, I worked in the conservative media before I was at BuzzFeed. I worked in the New York Sun was my first gig. Um, and although I don't really talk about my own politics, um, but have people on my staff who do, who 
come from from the right. But this is a moment when a lot of people who I think of as conservative intellectuals, you know, are not supporters of the Republican president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so if what you're looking for is Trump supporters in your newsroom, which I think, you know, this is certainly what some people are looking for. That is different from saying that we're looking for weirdo libertarians. Weirdo libertarians are a dime a dozen in this business. I mean, like, <laughs> are they, sorry. Are yes. they really? I mean, I think they outnumber people who work in the media and or out front Trumpists. That, that is probably Especially true. Especially with a written word. I mean, you can find some. Which if you're running an op-ed page, frankly, like I do think there's an argument for finding people who can articulate a you know, non-toxic view of Trumpism and that that is interesting and valuable in a way that marginalized weirdo libertarian views, although pretty yeah. close to the liberal views of your New York Times readership and overlapping and comfortable in a lot of ways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is maybe less interesting. We're not, I, we, there's not an army behind us, right? It's not, it's not tethered to people who are yeah, in the, power. In yeah, there's not a lot way. of value. Like there's less value in understanding how you think yeah. than in understanding how Donald Trump thinks. And not, not an impressive. Or how, Stephen, or how Stephen Miller Which thinks. means not an yeah. impressive like army not. behind you. And it's no, kind it's of, true. and it is kind of remarkable given the obvious demand for that, that it's hard to think of writers you know, among other things, whose whose motivations don't transparently come down to race, who that you know who, you can think of a few. Like I'd say, Michael Brandon Doherty is one who sort of represent a kind of like, if you took Trumpism and you sort of removed it from outright racism, and his and the cult of personality, and you said it's about, you know, it's about trade and and, you know, restricting immigration to help low-wage workers and about bringing the troops home. And there's like a bundle of issues that you could put together. And you and American Conservative Magazine. Yeah, the non-racist parts of American Conservative Magazine. But the problem is often you it often you, leads back to the lost cause. Like you follow a lot of these threads back to really, to play to awful places. But there's also like in Catholic conservatism, I think there are threads of American conservatism that, and that's definitely Michael Brennan's beat is the trad yeah, Catholic. Right. And I think beat. there's like there are, there are threads of religious conservatism that, you know, I think like they're sort of where Mike Huckabee comes from mm -hmm. is a version of this also a sort of big government traditionalist Christian conservatism. There, there's, there's something about what you just said, and it's it's a sentiment that I encounter all the time. We've gotten to a point where we casually make reference to the racist motivations of the president and his supporters and we generally are making that attribution and we're doing it in a pretty broad way. Um, and I, I've, for one, am pretty skeptical of a lot of the insinuations in that direction. I also think that in general, like the casualness with which we do that is in and of itself a problem because I don't think we're aware of the ways that we are downgrading what would qualify as racism and what would qualify as racist and the various ways in which we, we are simply talking about things that in some cases like opposition to immigration for example like this used uh, to be a mainstay right. of american of american uh, of bernie sanders bar, bar yeah, yeah there, for sure. right and there's obviously there's obviously a non-racist version of immigration restrictionism the it's just that sometimes you, you you know you read a columnist with that version and then you go read the rest of their work and I don't know. I remember, I mean, because, right, you can, right, I think, I mean, I think, right, you, there's a totally rational argument for less immigration. And and then with some, and with, but then with some people who are very excited, who are very into that, you start to wonder, well, why are you foaming? At, it's a good argument. Good point. Why are you foaming at the mouth about it? But I think that's, it ties back into this notion of, of diversity and even finding sort of Trump supporters. I mean, one of the concerns that I have is to the extent there is a large 
percentage of the the media universe who have that particular view of the president, even if they don't outwardly talk about their politics, like that sentiment, because this notion of objectivity, there's a, a, there's I don't a think pretense that's a sentiment. It's, like go read the central part. Like it, I've covered even, it in New York for 20 even that, years. Even that the assertion, the central I'm saying park that, five, I mean, the central, like it's I'm not, saying that we have a disagreement. So it is a sentiment. So you think that you the and, politics, you, and I, you think you and that I like his sort of signature, you know, coming out in politics, his support of executing the central park five. Uh huh. That was not a race. That that was not racist. That didn't have to do, do you, with race. Do you, if I, I mean, could I grew find up here in the if 80s, I could find obviously, I'll that. give you I'll give you this. If I could find black people who supported executing the Central Park Five, who continued to believe that they were guilty even after they were they were vindicated, would that be proof of anything to you? If I could find black people who supported, for example, keeping Confederate monuments in the South, no, would that be not. of any significance whatsoever? I, I think racism like an actual statement about the inferiority of one race versus another and holding a perspective which you and I might find objectionable or one that we might even have a difficult time rationalizing. These are different things. And right. it the is, question, it does you're, require... You're asking a question about what's in your heart. Well, I agree. Which, That's a very which, hard thing to know about but people. We make, but we, at this point, are making pretty definitive statements but I think pretty routinely about what's in people's heart. the politics of racial division is a thing you can watch and see and do or not do and make choices about and that... Like Trump has obviously made a set of choices and done that. Yeah, I, 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 I heard I've heard the argument. I, I don't find it persuasive and I'm a vehement critic of the president. And for me, especially because I, I know Trump supporters um, and for me, I would rather criticize the president on the merits. And I think that there is something to be gained from being able to write pieces and to observe the president and even to report on the president in a straight news way. I'm using air quotes for people who can't see me. Um, I think being able to do that without the baggage of perhaps presuming that we know what's in his heart is is useful. And it's particularly useful to people who support the president and who might be persuaded that he is wrong about one thing or another. Um, and it also might help put into context the various things that simply do not fit that narrative. Yeah, I think that's why, I mean, that's why I wish the New York Times would stop employing weirdo libertarians and find some people <laughs> who articulated a, you know, a pretty, you know, a, who articulated the best version of, of his politics. Well, then I'm not a weirdo libertarian because that's, that's what I try to do. <laughs> Who's the weirdo the libertarian time. at the New York Times? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're weirdo, neo, no, sorry, they're weirdo, weirdo neoconservatives who also are wonderful and interesting. Yeah, but diametrically but, opposed. <laughs> not diametrically, but yes, but um, they share your I'm views not, on taxation. I'm not going to make a uh, Ness Cannon Center joke. <laughs> <laughs> not going to do, do it. it. Not going to do it. Ben. The future of this country, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you Thank for you that. for reading David Brooks. Someone has Thank to. you for that dig. <laughs> I know you've got to run soon. Anything that you wanted to perhaps throw out there before you skate out of the room? Yeah, what's the future news? You have five seconds. Can you Emoji announce it Emoji only media. <laughs> Text is dead. It's amazing to me, just as a comment, that, what, three years ago, if we talked about BuzzFeed in, oh my God. in a news context, yeah. there would just be a, a snicker. Maybe I mean, five years ago. Is it five? Yeah. I mean, Maybe five. When, yeah, yeah when, when did that stop? Because that definitely, there was a thing. And then it's like, oh, you know, this is pretty good. But, I mean, BuzzFeed, come on. Yeah. And it's just, that's not I a thing I honestly anymore. miss it, like, because it was such a... <laughs> <laughs> Slideshows. I, I, well, no, I remember 2014, it, like when we, were, when we were working on the independence. I remember like grabbing BuzzFeed stories uh -huh. and sharing them. And I'm like, guys, this, this is good. This yeah. was around then when he started sharing them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some personal anecdotes are informative. Yeah, yeah. The no, but I mean, it was such a great. It was actually such a great asset to have people say. Like it would be it, when we would break news, it would also be news that we had broken news because it was so weird that this cat website. Was I remember breaking that. News. <laughs> yeah. And that, in fact, 
amplified all the news. Like every store, every scoop you got, you would get both like, hey, here's a scoop, and then like a secondary echo of, and weird, BuzzFeed broke it. I missed that. That was a, that was a pure so someone, advantage for Someone us. calls and they're just like, hey, it's Ken from it BuzzFeed. It was sort of man, man bites cat. Yeah. Um, What's going on so, over there? Tell us all your secrets. Yeah. Well, you guys have been doing genuinely some really great, phenomenal, investigative, journalistic work. Um, and uh, I'm delighted that you stopped by. I hope you'll be able to come by again at some yeah, point. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad we can make this work. The fifth column. 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 Okay. Oh, wow. Cool. Wow. My work thing popped up. I, I had one of my reporters interview Candace Owens yesterday, and uh, oh. It, oh. It, was, it was it got messy. Oh, did it? And uh, yet she just tweeted out the interview. Of course she did. <laughs> she loves that crap. Yeah. But the, I mean, she lives for that. She's yeah. a savage. Cool. Well- that was that fun. Was, that was fun. Right? It was nice. We don't have a lot of folks who pop in and then pop out, but occasionally it happens. And when it does, we roll with the punches. But I, I thought that was good. Yeah, so it's you're great. Just, I mean, get an editor-in-chief of a very prominent online news publication to not, join us. Not that we never do. We have an editor-at-large all the time. No, no. We'd make the accommodation to allow him to skate out early and yeah. not drink. Yeah, that's true. They're, they've raised like 500 million. You at reason. 500 million? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The the fuck, reason man. is I raised. The lifestyle and food verticals at BuzzFeed are enormous. Yeah. You know, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. BuzzFeed News. People still have verticals? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. absolutely. BuzzFeed Sorry. News, I, I meant all of the words of praise yeah. that I offered. Catherine Miller, who was formerly the politics editor, late of Free Beacon, is great. Uh, Anthony Cormier and Jason mm-hmm. Leopold on the investigative squad are great. And there's quite a few. Joe, Joe Bernstein's a great media reporter. There are uh, legal people, too, are pretty good at covering Chris the, Geidner Chris is on, on the really good, Supreme yeah. Court beat. He's great. Well, there's been a bunch of stuff that happened this past week, which we really haven't talked about much. The fact is that in any given week, we can have 15 different scandals um, but this week does feel particularly insane. Like on Monday of this week, we had the pair of reports uh, by independent researchers that were delivered to the Senate Intelligence Committee about Russian hacking, which spawned a great many headlines, some of which about how African-Americans were targeted by Russian hackers, social engineer people um, via Instagram. And there was hundreds of millions of impressions and how Facebook and company had undersold it. Um, by Tuesday, I don't even remember what happened on Tuesday, but I know on Wednesday, the president's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, he was supposed to get sentenced, but it was delayed because there was this nasty fight that happened. Not even a fight. It wasn't because the fight. It wasn't a nasty fight. The delay was This is true. It wasn't because of the fight, but there was also this nasty berating that he received from a a federal judge. It was a performative judge, which judges often do, which is gross, even when the person who is being sentenced is bad or did a bad thing. Yes, I think it was was kind of immediately like, whoa, what did he say? It was one of the the craziest courtroom things so far in the uh, Trump moment. Throwing the word treason around a yes. bunch and giving Flynn opportunities uh, to back out of his uh, his plea deal. He also um, said Perhaps Logan so Act. he could throw him in jail. Yeah, yeah Logan Act, which the first time a federal judge has probably done that. And then in, in the, the recess, courtroom. the government lawyers smacked him around and were like, he's yeah. a cooperating witness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think Wednesday was also the same day that Donald Trump t- tweets that he wants out of Syria um, and does so via a very small text tweet accompanied by an attached video of him uh, outside of the uh, White House. Which was a great video. It, was it a great video? Did I you mean, like the production quality on that? No, I mean- or you liked what he said? I liked what he said in that. I mean, I'm sure there's two or three things that are that are bad about it because it's Donald Trump and it's a whole minute long. Uh, but uh, the basic idea is, you know, I hate calling 
the wives and husbands and family members of a U.S. service person who's been killed overseas. It's terrible. It's the worst part of my job. That's that's the right thing to say. Mm-hmm. That is the worst part of your job. Except it's a when Putin thing. is telling you to say it. Don't I'm start sorry. with me. I'm sorry. Don't I'm, start I'm getting me. a little ahead of myself. Go but on. That, but keep going. So yeah. at any rate, that's Wednesday. That's he Wednesday. announces this and official Washington loses its collective mind. And and I mean, in a bar, in a bipartisan way, there are conservatives, neocons who are freaking out because, oh, my God, we're, we're abandoning the effort in Syria. ISIS Lindsay, is going to Lindsay come Graham's brief flirtation with Trump has, I think, you know, it's just come splintered to a crashing this. halt. Yeah. yeah. At least for the week. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Um, but also Democrats. Um, and Rachel Maddow. And Not all Democrats. People. Not there, all Democrats, I, 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 we, but some, but a lot. We, we, oh, yeah, a great many. But they're, a, whole, they're, a whole lot who I wouldn't yeah. have suspected to be particularly Noam on edge about this. Chomsky, did you see this? I yeah. did not. Oh. Noam fucking Chomsky. Noam Chomsky so, said what? Sorry, Manuel. Uh, said that uh, <laughs> that uh, we should keep U.S. troops in Syria as a bulwark against Turkey. Get yeah. the fuck out of Noam here. Noam Chomsky. In, in, fair- in order to, pr- to protect our, our Kurdish in fairness, allies. In fairness, Noam Chomsky has hated Turkey since I've been alive. Yeah. Right? Okay. But he would usually argue that someone else should be the one. Right. There might know, be other ways of persuasion yeah. to get there without having to use American effort. But, you know, it, it's a uh, yeah, check it out. Noam Ch- Chomsky. So Chomsky's kind of going in the opposite direction of Bill Crystal. You know? No, I'm, <laughs> I, I tweeted out the Chomsky tr- Crystal ticket. <laughs> you did? Uh, is uh, It's going to be lit. Sm- co-sponsored by the Niskanen Center. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Wow, two mentions in one place. Yeah, they're getting a lot of press this week. Thursday, (laughs) um, on Thursday, Congress passed the First Step Act, um, which is is interesting. Uh, This is a a piece of criminal justice reform legislation that's actually being sent to the desk of the president for signature. Signed it today. Um, This is, oh, did he already sign it? He did. Oh, then there it is, signed today, um, which is Friday which is the day when we are waiting potentially for an, oh my God, government shutdown. Um, oh, also Thursday was the day that the president um, directed the Pentagon to give him a plan for getting the hell out of Afghanistan. I think it was to um, get 7,000 troops out. Which is Of half. the 14 and a half yeah, yeah. out. And Mad Dog Mattis uh, submitted today. his resignation yesterday. That was uh, Thursday. Okay, right. And, uh, which is effective in February and wrote a very sternly worded uh, letter uh, about that and uh, that if people were freaking out about Syria, oh my God, did they start freaking about out about like the last adult has left left the room and this is a terrible thing, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, and if I may, uh, the Mattis part kind of does concern me because uh, he what he articulated was essentially that the post-World War II liberal democratic order matters. And it's being savaged by his boss, which and, which I have a lot of agreement with. Yeah, sure, yeah. Yes. and uh, who knows who's coming next? I mean, you know, Trump's Trump's uh, skittishness about interventionism is always been a, something that's a good thing in in general. Uh, but I do worry about his impulsiveness, announcing a pullout without a plan, announcing it before he's even discussed it with the generals or and at the objection of his defense secretary. I worry about somebody else who is also kind of impulsive having influence on the president to do different things. I I get that, and and it's a real concern that shouldn't be downplayed. However, everything the president does is impulsive. I feel like that there's an over-process argument to this particular thing. Mm yeah, was it impulsive when we uh, when he bombed the airfield in Syria? Well, yeah. according to Fareed Zakaria, that was the day he, he became president. Yeah, for a lot guided, of people, right? By the beauty of our weapons. Uh, yeah, and what's his face, uh, Brian, Brian Williams? Uh, uh, I want to say Brian Brian Wilson. <laughs> guided by the view. Anyways, um, <laughs> sorry, that wasn't nice. 
<laughs> I love you, Brian. Uh, suddenly, we notice that he acts in an impulsive way. Like he, when he did the first Muslim ban, which back when it was an actual Muslim ban, totally impulsive, badly done, ham-handed, and these kind of. That's how he does kind of everything. It's not an excuse for it. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be impulsive. But if he's going to do anything that I like, chances of it being impulsive are pretty strong, hmm. especially, and here's something to consider possibly, as Camille was referencing before when we were talking to Ben, um, when everyone is against this thing that you're doing, you're going up against entirely the military establishment, the Washington establishment, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the bipartisan, very serious people, the capital VSP, and they've all been telling you, you can't do it, that you can't do it, that you can't do it. You have to stay indefinitely. And you and this is something that doesn't get uh, brought up uh, very much. He's already did a micro surge in Afghanistan yeah. in August 2017. Uh-huh. We, mm-hmm. we added troops, 4000 troops back then. He's ratcheted up the bombing there as well. He's ratcheted up bombing. Drone every, strikes are way there. up over yeah. Obama. Um, and he's taking the gloves off or the handcuffs off, as he's put it. But he listened to the generals before. I mean, one of the critiques right now is, oh, he didn't listen to the generals. He didn't coordinate. And I think all of that is true. That's right. And there's something reckless about it, for sure. Um, at the same time, he acts recklessly. Um, and there's nobody around him. Because, I mean, he's got hawks around him, actually. John Bolton is around him. Mike mm-hmm. Pompeo. All these people are hawks. Yeah. Uh, but the, none of them have been to war, except for Mattis. Mattis has been to war, but yeah. Mattis is also a hawk uh, for the most part. You might, yes, you might call with, quali- it, with qualifications. With qualifications, uh, McMaster also a hawk, but with qualifications, yeah. and was interesting about his uh, his book on Vietnam. Um, so, in that scenario, you might feel like you're outnumbered, 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 and if you're an impulsive dickhead, which he is, um, you might say, fuck it. <laughs> Let's withdraw. And the thing that's getting me, and sorry I'm talking a lot, but this is kind of uh, putting a burn in my saddle, mm. is that... All this freak out, right? All this Bill Crystal. this is the most worried I've been in my 35 years in Washington. Tom mm. Nichols, like, mm. you know, we told you, you know, never Trumpers told you there'd be a moment like this. Everybody, fucking David Simon, mm. David the Wire, Simon, yes. Johnny <laughs> commie liberal over there yes. is saying like, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about the, you know, the security of the con- country now that Mattis has resigned, this kind of stuff. I would love to see what David Simon said about Mattis two years ago. <laughs> the trigger point for all of this is not that the president does a Muslim ban. It's not that he separates families at the border. It's not that he says trade wars are good and easy to win. It's not that he does, I don't know a dozen terrible things that he has done as president or tried to do as president. It's that he announces the withdrawal of 9,000 troops. How many fucking Americans knew that there were 2,000 troops in Syria oh, two weeks ago? Precious right? few. My God, yeah. nobody, yeah, I mean, right? And, and no, and no like, like maybe 1% of Americans knew even about American boots on the ground in Yemen before Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. So like, this is the thing, this is the moment. Someone at the, uh, have I mentioned the Niskanen Center uh, a couple of times today? Niskanen yeah. Center drink. <laughs> uh, some kid from there today suggested to Republicans, hey, if you're really upset about uh, about uh, Trump's uh, pullout from Syria, you really should impeach him. So I'm glad to see that the new center. Is that right? The, the new center did right. They, did they really? Abso-fucking-lutely, yes. Are we really devoting time to this? No, no, no more. <laughs> but, no but, more. Don't, what, what, don't. What, one quick thing on Mattis, though, like, um, as I do remember no. when, the, when the Woodward book came out, uh, you know, one of the nuggets, and, and we know Woodward can be a fabulous, but if you buy this at all uh, – Trump was pretty pissed off about the cost of troops in South Korea Mm. and uh, reportedly wanted to immediately pull them out. And Mattis uh, like kind of put his hand uh, out and was like, 
those troops are there to prevent World War III. The lack of somebody who's got the credibility of a Mattis to be able to say such things does legitimately concern me. Yes, and at the same time, there is a, like, are they there to prevent World War III? Uh Have we been resting on those assumptions lazily for 70 years? I say this as the only libertarian in the world who supports NATO, um, but, uh, or like the idea. I'm okay, I'm okay with the NATO, uh, as long as they pay their way. <laughs> uh, but like the, there, there are lazy assumptions built into it. I was talking with Camille before we started this, uh, this, uh, uh, podcast, um, that there's a piece, uh, written in the AP that I've seen a lot of people like heavy breathing about talking about the, the genesis of the Syria withdrawal, by the way, New York times, the headline on it, which they changed in the print edition, but the early one that was a snapshot of a printed paper, so it got out there, huh. was uh, Mattis resigns after Trump's retreat wow. in Syria. Wow. Retreat. Phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, this, the, 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 the- Retreat. There's a lot of, there's, there, there are cognitive, there's cognitive dissonance on many sides right wow. now. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that pulling out of unpopular wars not authorized by Congress. But this is, is <laughs> this is the point that I was making yeah. earlier. When he was running for office, mm-hmm. he talked about doing this. Earlier this year, he said we will be pulling out of Syria very soon. He said it on the same day that the Pentagon suggested that we should be there for some time. Um, the, the president's intentions around this have been pretty clear publicly for some time. The notion that there is no plan whatsoever, to the extent that's the case... Like Syria and Afghanistan are different fault is things. That? And, and, I'll, and I'll take it a step further. Well, I'm talking about Syria yeah. at the moment, yeah. but we, but it, and it's true, he's asking for a plan in Afghanistan, right? Um, but with respect to, to the Syrian withdrawal, all of the talk about a plan, what I find most bothersome about it is the fact that having a plan is not necessarily commensurate with having a good plan. Mm-hmm. And the quality of your plan depends on the degree to which once it comes into contact with reality, all of the good results that you promised us are precisely the results that we receive. And the fact is that there have been plenty of people who have planned and made patient decisions and thoughtfully contemplated the various ways in which we would intervene in this region of the world in order to make it better and to make it more fruitful for all of us. And I'm I'm remembering President Obama giving a speech looking exceedingly presidential, talking about us taking some moderate risks and making uh, the world a better place for other people's children in order to make it better for our children mm-hmm. in Syria. Perhaps perhaps we've done that. Perhaps we went into Syria and we have rooted out ISIS and now things will be better. It's not obvious to me that that's the case. And yeah. it's also not obvious to me that staying there indefinitely would have been the case. When we've talked about this in the past, we we have a theater of war where the Russians and the United States are both there in a small region of the world and way more Russians and, than and us. are against are working wait, against one another's wait, interests. Wait, we could fight the Russians. <laughs> this I'm is, so in favor of this, but that's precisely what I'm saying. I mean, the, the possibility for something really dastardly well, yeah, to come about as a consequence of the stay the course policy, yeah. it, it is as if no one is 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 at all aware of what could happen here. But only months ago, they were. But th- those of us who opposed Syrian intervention when President Obama was basically saying it was imminent, uh, said this very thing. This means war with Russia on, you know, it, it maybe not, you know. By, by on, proxy. Uh, yeah, but but very much could be directly. If we set up a, if we set up a no-fly zone anywhere in Syria, mm-hmm. Russia violates it. Which we Hillary would be Clinton was in favor of, very, John McCain was in favor absolutely. of. Absolutely. Yes. And we, you know, a great many of us argued against that. And 
you know, again, this the, the, because there's so many arguments happening at once, we kind of like forget that, uh, you know, like a, a lot of the Republicans who, you know, some Republicans aren't up, up in arms, like the Lindsey Graham contingent. Some Republicans who are Trumpists are like, hey, this is a promise kept. But these are the same Republicans who had a conniption when Obama drew down troops in Iraq, sure. as he was required to do by the agreement that President Bush and the Iraqi government had had made. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, you know, and even Trump himself, there's a tweet that, that popped up that was literally seven years ago yesterday uh -huh, saying uh -huh. Iraq, you know, the pullout in Iraq is going to lead to chaos. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you know th so, you know, there's. It's tough to say that anyone's really kept to their principles here. No, and, and but, I'm not even I, I wouldn't demand that. Yeah. Right. You're allowed to change your mind yeah. on these things. It, it, that, all of that is fine. Uh, the, the question here is whether or not what the president is ordering here is fundamentally bad policy. And I suppose part of the question is also whether or not he's doing this in a way that's too haphazard, too knee jerk, that he hasn't thought about this carefully enough. Um, and that's likely to endanger national security for the United States for the foreseeable future in a way that is completely detrimental. And uh, I suppose we'll see. I think that no one is actually arguing too much that it's going to be detrimental to uh, our own national security. The the most honorable argument is that we are dishonoring our commitments to the Kurds, sure. uh, that uh, Turkey is going to engineer some kind of massacre, that they're, they've been making threatening noises for that, and that's bad. We've abandoned people in the field. Okay, I get that. Um, and I should say that when I um, favor withdrawing, which I do from Syria, which I do from Afghanistan, which I do from Iraq um, uh, and Yemen and wherever el the fuck else we are. Not everywhere, but certainly let's start with those active kind of uh, wars. Uh, it's not because I think that it's going to make those places better. It's with the knowledge that it might get a lot worse. Mm -hmm. It totally might get a lot worse. And that's terrible and heartbreaking. And we can't control the outcomes in the whole world, especially in the absence of political support and financial support that is not limitless. So what are you going to do in that constrained universe? Would we go back in 1975 and say, you know what, there's going to be a Cambodian genocide, so let's not pull out of Vietnam. I don't think there's many people alive right now who remember that, um, who would say, yeah, we should have stayed there anyways. I think that people... It took him a long time, and H.R. McMaster is someone who got into this, but it took him a long time to realize, okay, maybe there was some folly associated with that. Um, when well, speaking of Chomsky on the Cambodian genocide, who was kind of skeptical that the, that se place. the severity of it was happening at all, and even when it did, whose fault it was. Yeah. Uh, this whole plan thing, um, I think that, again, that there's some um, argument that that is true, that there's a lack of planning. But I went back, talking about media and stuff like that. The Weekly Standard closed its doors or had them closed on them one week ago today mm. on Friday. So I took the opportunity. And I like the Weekly Standard. I like a lot of the people there. Um, I, I, found, I found it to be <laughs> the best humor. magazine in our competitive set uh, at Reason. One, I was the uh, editor there. Like I just enjoyed it more. So it was a more better writers and a, a pretty well put out magazine. But so when they uh, got euthanized by uh, Philip Anschutz, uh, and his deputies, I went back and started reading the post 9-11 covers. Yeah, you tweeted those out. Those were, those, that was that was very valuable that you actually did that. I, Holy I, I like shit. Matt Labosh's uh, writing a lot. And no, he's great. I, and I love that he's not on Twitter. 
Um, but yes, there was, it was valuable to show like the damage that what the weekly standard had done because they were very influential at that time. Let's talk about plans. Mm. Here's Max Boot's plan mm. for, uh, for, uh, the Middle East in, on October 15th, 2001, in a cover story called The Case <coughs> for American Imperialism. Let's just, let, never forget. let's just do it. Yeah. Um, Which it, wasn't that much dissimilar to Thomas Friedman's columns at the time. Uh, or or uh, David Brooks's or you know, a bunch yeah. of different people at the time. And it was – you could in, in the same paragraph, you would see like after we have pacified – Kabul and created a regent state there yep. as a model for democracy. Then super easy. Then <laughs> there was a then in that same <laughs> sentence. Then we can move on, you know, and do that in Baghdad. And after we've uh, established these demonstration projects, we can do X, Y, and Z. This was this was considered very, very serious mm-hmm. planning. Mm-hmm. And they like, were the grown-ups in the room. They anyone, were, anyone, they who, were a, the grown-ups. Anyone in the room. who dissented was a you know commie peacenik, you know North Korean sympathizer. So yes, uh, Trump was impetuous and reckless on this. But as I was mentioning before, um, uh, this AP story that a lot of people are freaking out about, uh, which talks about how part of his decision in Syria came about. Uh, with a phone call with Erdogan of Turkey. Am I pronouncing that wrong? Erdogan. Yeah, it's got a G. Like it's a fucking G. Soft it's, G. I've heard both. Very soft G. I've Fuck heard your soft G. <laughs> this is America. People know who you're talking about. It's fine. Uh, Erdogan. I, I, I'm money hands not here. Somebody's got to be the potato. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so like, go and read that story because it's interesting. He'll. Uh, it, it, uh, so Trump is on the phone with Erdogan one uh, and uh, talking about uh, uh, and he's supposed to, he's been given he's been coached. Uh, the president has. Um, a bunch of kind of stiff talking points of like, hey, don't go into Syria. Don't mess with the Kurds. You know, you got to stiffen American spine here because we're fighting with the Kurds kind of a kind of against Turkey. It's complicated. And uh, and uh, Erdogan uh, says at some point to Trump, like, hey, you know that um, ISIS, the caliphate, has lost 99 percent of its uh, territory. Uh, there. So it's kind of how long are you going to stay there? Because, I mean, you kind of that's that's just one percent left. And Trump, according to the reporting here, which all of the, the, the descriptions, the adjectives within the reporting were all as if like Trump was Erdogan's puppet here. But like the actual facts and the quotes that they're they're pointing out don't support that. Mm-hmm. It's him listening to that to that argument and saying to John Bolton, who is on the phone call, like, hey, is that true? Is that true <laughs> that uh, that uh, we've we've you know decimated ninety nine percent of their uh, their ter- and he's like yeah, yeah you know that's uh, that's actually true sure uh, yep um, that's true and Trump's saying well why why are we still there like it's as if he was persuaded by a pretty interesting fact on the ground and sure there's a countervailing fact which is perennial in the Middle East and in, in, in Shitsville around the world, which is that after they've lost their territory and you leave um, you haven't like genocided them. So they will come back out and they might uh, try to regain territory. Okay. That's going to happen. Um, but, uh, ultimately he was being persuaded by an argument, not like manipulated like a puppet. If there is manipulation, it's going beyond the scenes, behind the scenes, we can't see it. But the reaction, uh, among a lot of people in the chattering class, just as like, it's well known that he's doing this at the behest of Vladimir Putin and Erdogan. Um, and granted, which doesn't make sense. They're cross purposes. They're cross purposes. I mean, both the the element in which it does make sense is that in the 
process of the Russian investigation, Mike Flynn was working for Turkey without disclosing it and a bunch of other Mike stuff. Mike Flynn like was that. promiscuous with the political, uh, you know, movements and, and uh, dictators he was working for. But like the, the even the uh, behavior of Trump as represented in that phone call was not the behavior of a captive person mm-hmm. who was acting uh, in a ventriloquist style way. It was someone who was given a fact like, hey, that sounds kind of persuasive. Let's go with that fact. Um, uh it's it's amazing to me that this is this is the moment finally when everyone is going to decide that Trump is the illegitimate pre- uh, president. Nine thousand troops? Are you kidding me? Well, you you only need fresh reminders that Trump is an illegitimate president, as opposed to this being the particular moment. They're they're all the moment. We just string them together. So what was further, the last further evidence of his corruption? I, I think H. W. Bush might have been the last president legitimately considered legitimate by the vast majority of Americans, because Clinton didn't win a majority because Perot ran twice. Right, but uh, they didn't really but, accuse him of of like actually engineering no, he, the election. No, but the, but there was there were the, especially among the Gingrich contingent, there was a, a sense that he was illegitimate because he didn't have you know win a majority. Right, which went away. That argument went away after George W. Bush won the presidency despite losing the popular vote, and Democrats never considered him legitimate. There was a significant contingent on the right that never considered Obama legitimate because, because he wasn't born in America, according to current President Trump. Totally true, and President Trump. Uh, no need to rehash his uh, legitimacy arguments. So it's been some time since we've had even the even the basic unity behind whether you like the president or not, he was duly elected. Uh, even then, um, and I forget how much, if at all, we've talked about George H.W. Bush on this podcast, but um, uh, I recall being in college at the time. I was 19 or something or 18. It was my first election that I voted for. And of course, I voted for Michael Dukakis, for which I feel an eternal sense of deep personal shame, um, uh, people were lost their minds about it because, you know, Ronald Reagan was a doofus. We all knew that. He was just stupid. It's dangerous. He's he going to kill us all. He had Alzheimer's and stuff. The real danger is George Bush. We didn't even call him H.W. back then. That's how dangerous he was because wow. he just worked for the CIA. So, like, this is the real fascism mm-hmm. that's coming uh-huh. is George Bush here. And if we don't stop that, it's over. It is It is nightmaresville in America. Watch out. I, I used to uh, uh, write in this uh, weather box at the in, in uh, um, the, the, the newspaper that I worked at at uh, UC Santa Barbara because I was the night production guy. And so I would write some crazy, not, you know, high 72, low 54 every single day, uh, change the sunset and the sunrise time. And beyond that, I would write some crazy fun nonsense about stuff and kind of became a whole thing there. The weather box the day after uh, Bush got elected in 1988 was all black. Wow. man, we're just like, we're in mourning. We're in a fascist dawn wow. of America here. Um, people, people lose their minds. I'm a fan of uh, the comedy of Bill Hicks who died in, I think, 1993 or four, even though he's a very far left figure. And a, and a hero to that. Uh, I, I still think he was a very funny comedian whose comedy still holds up. But yeah, there's a ton of stuff of him going absolutely apeshit over George Bush and the lingering fascism that is going to envelop us all. So we, we've, we've been going for a little while. There's plenty of stuff that we could talk about. Um, I think it would be a, a travesty and a crime since this may ultimately shut down the government, which would clearly mean the death of 500,000 Americans. It would be very tragic. This would be the greatest tragedy since the Civil War. A little bit of sarcasm there. How many? What's the percentage of, of government employees who actually will be furloughed temporarily? I have no idea. But, I mean, it's like Seven. almost Christmas. Yeah, it's less so than 10%. I can't, I can't think of a better time to shut down the government and save a few dollars or something. 
um, than like right around Christmas time. Camille, Camille's not very good at sarcasm. They'll still get sarcasm. They'll still get paid. Um, no, that that is serious. I really yeah. can't think of a better time to shut down. I would love to have like a four month government shutdown just over to see what happens. The border wall. Yeah, I'm not kidding about Why not? that. Like. You've been you've been like picking at this scab for a long time. <laughs> Hell yeah! Let's just rip the fucker off. Yeah, let's I see. Mean, let's see what you- for crying out loud. If you're going to campaign on a thing that isn't possible or true or desirable, over and over again, the people who support you have wanted this fantasy, this theory that can't possibly come true unless you completely overturn the basic notion of private property and where. Rivers and mountains <laughs> and mountains flow. Uh, if you really, if this wants to be your thing, and you want to be the ones who own it, because you will, um, in a situation where the support for immigration in this country in the last year and a half has gone from sixty-six percent to seventy-five percent, something like that. Yeah. A, Unlike most of the world, it's actually immigration is more popular in the United States. Granted, it'll last as long as the you know hatred for Donald <laughs> Trump lasts, so it's skin deep. Uh, but if if this wants, if you want to do this, let's do this. Let's go ahead. And meanwhile, we won't have a government, so that's all right. Yeah, but the best thing that could possibly happen here, the best outcome, is this crowdfunding effort to build the wall, take off. Fisher, I know you were just checking the numbers. What what the hell is the uh, grand total right now? We are now, uh, and again, it is four forty on Friday, December twenty first, and we are just. Passing 13 million. This morning, I edited a piece that just passed 12 million. And you said it was 13 million from about 213,000 people. Approximately. Quick, quick. Do the numbers. So roughly, I mean, it's I did I used the calculator on my MacBook Pro. Sixty-one dollars. It'd be more impressive. Sixty-one dollars. Sixty-one dollars. I mean, that is honestly the the average is impressive. And I wonder, you know, again, I can't scroll through two hundred twelve thousand donations. I wonder if it's skewed by one monster donation. I scrolled through a couple, and there were a couple of two fifties in there. Two fifties is not the thing that would skew. That's not what I mean, Camille. How much you put in? I didn't put in a dime, (laughs) but but I do I do want to say, listen, I think it's a stupid idea. I think this is a waste of money. That said, I applaud these fine Americans who have taken the initiative saying, you know what? We want this thing. We want it. We want to build this wall. And if you won't pay for it, Camille, we'll do it ourselves. I say more power to you. I want every dope who has a stupid political goal (laughs) to pay for said goal themselves. You have a bold new program that you're sure is going to remedy hunger for the foreseeable future. Great. You pay for it. Prove it. Absolutely. Outstanding. Go fund me for Medicare for all. All of that crap. Do Medicare for y'all. A GoFundMe government is precisely what I want. Shut it all down. (laughs) Put it all on GoFundMe. This is my perspective. I, uh, this I'm, is the most libertarian I won't argue episode with that. of, the, real, uh, of real, the Fifth Column podcast. So we, the, 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 the interesting thing uh, is that GoFundMe takes no responsibility for where these funds actually go. They do take 2.9% of all funds raised. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the taxation thing is murky. Haven't gotten a straight answer on that, whether it's a state thing or a federal thing. Um, but perhaps not um, unrelated to this, uh, the Trump – PAC, uh, re-election PAC, is inviting uh, supporters to become, quote-unquote, official wall members where oh. they donate. To the GoFundMe campaign? No. Oh. They they just donate to become official wall members, and it goes through the Trump PAC. We don't know where it lands, but it has nothing to do with- Well, the Trump, le- with, Trump legal it has defense nothing. It has obviously. nothing to do with actually funding the wall. It's kind of a way of- duping Trump supporters out of their money by the Trump re-election campaign. This is uh, like Michael Avenatti doing the Beto O'Rourke campaign. 
slush fund or Jill or Jill Stein running oh, that yeah. campaign right after the 2016 election saying I'm going to get to the bottom of the whole Russia Go oh yeah, yeah that was so great and kept all the money GoFundMe yeah, is the greatest like grift enabler. So, <laughs> so like every you know, we, uh, we've all spent about the last eighteen months freaking out about Facebook. I think GoFundMe's next. I think that's that's going to be the one. Right? Yeah, we're having too much fun with this because it's not merely the wall; it's also the ladder to go over the wall. Which uh, there's a campaign there. I don't know what that's raised. So, so here's, and an escalator here, to go. Over the wall. Here, here's the, the the website says the Democrats have made it clear they care more about political games than the safety of American citizens. To make a statement that the American people will quote capital letters never back down, mm. we're launching official <laughs> wall membership program today. The grammar isn't very good there. Uh, but that's uh, apparently what the site says. And they're, again, much like the GoFundMe campaign, there is no transparency about where the money actually goes. But you can be a member if you hand over your money. It's kind of like uh, uh, in the 80s, uh, the uh, Christian evangelical televangelists, you know, where, you know, you, you give your money, you go to heaven. You know, and they just need to marry this with the Amway so that, you know, not only do you give the money, but you recruit five people yeah. in a really annoying a, a, way. A pyramid scheme hmm. of yes. wall hmm. funding. I, I think all of these are great approaches <laughs> to governance <laughs> and to financing You're not government. wrong. And when no. we have so many difficulties actually funding the government and getting Congress to actually pass budgets, they don't do that sort of thing anymore. Stop it. We don't need to do this anymore. No more continuing resolutions. All Just 100% volunteer government. I love that crap. I was... That's, which, hey... IRS, voluntary system anyways. Ask Wesley Snipes. <laughs> it's the truth. Didn't Wesley Snipes go to prison for several years? Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's voluntarily. <laughs> it's not voluntary. <laughs> I interviewed Patrick Byrne from Overstock.com a couple months ago in, in uh, Salt Lake City uh, about blockchain. The poor guy, like, trying to explain to me how blockchain works. Uh, when, when was this? This is in October. Yeah, it's been a, been a very difficult year. For uh, Bitcoin and such, for valuations and things, but they've uh, they've uh, picked up the last couple of days, at least according to John McAfee's Twitter feed, which is the only yeah. reason to be on Twitter. Call, color me skeptical. Uh, anywho, um, he was mentioning uh, that for him, what makes blockchain interesting is that it is a ledger system. It's a trust system. How mm -hmm. how can people who don't know each other trust each other? So you have to create some kind of. Um, peer-to-peer -peer, but yet the reviewable uh, system in which people can transact. And government, in his view, or a lot of large institutions or even credit card companies, whatever, these are like trust holders. They are institutions that arise because we're not – we don't have the, the, the technology to make strangers be able to trust each other. They, they, they're mediated through these institutions. And so blockchain eventually can be a way around those and to expose the unnecessariness – that's a good mm -hmm. word uh, – of these institutions. And so I wonder if GoFundMe – or it's uh, after it's been shut down uh, <laughs> by uh, by Congress, uh, the, the, its successor isn't something like that. Like, something, something blockchain based. Not blockchain, blockchain based. Blockchain GoFundMe. What, what I'm, I'm sure someone has already. What I'm this. saying is that is like is, is that you can the things that really 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 matter to mm -hmm. X people, they can organize themselves and make X happen mm -hmm. in a way where they don't necessarily have to make it a big thing with a capital G called government. Mm -hmm. And blockchain is a, a, a way to make that happen. Mm -hmm. It sounds crazy to me, to be yeah. clear, and I don't understand the technology of it. But if you look at mediating institutions that exist because we don't have a way to make sure me, person across the world, and Camille uh, can trust each other, um, there's a lot of different 
things like that. If there is a way to root around that, there's there are applications for the way that we collectively do things together in a way called government that could be interesting and more streamlined. Yeah. Your explanation is fine insofar as it goes. Yes, it's a vehicle for for giving us greater trust, largely by giving you a degree of transparency. There is a ledger and we can all see, yeah, no, I really did send you the money. But whether or not you did the thing is another thing entirely. Did you, in fact, build the wall with the money that I sent you? (laughs) Yes, I can see that you received all of the funds. That is precisely the account that you said you would use. And then you transferred all of the funds to someone else. But I see a brand new Maserati there. Actually, I see 15 of them. I do not see a wall. What happened? Maybe you won't trust me again. Fool me once. Shame on shame on you. Well, Fool me twice. See, if you're fooled, then you can't get fooled more again. You can't get fooled again. Than the, uh, <laughs> than the uh, you know, 500% increase that we've had over the last 15 years, whatever it is, on border security. Uh-huh. Like, we don't think about that, yeah. right? Uh, Greg Bietta wrote a great uh, column for Reason a couple of years ago, just sort of tallying up how much money, how many uh, 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 borders and custom uh, patrol agents that we've uh, we've hired uh, in in this meantime, uh, and and like we're throwing chasing good money after bad yeah. on this in a way that people pretend like it hasn't happened. We spent so much more money on this than we did 18 years ago. It's it's crazy. Yeah, and. People act like it's been a blank slate and no one's been funding it. It's well, I like true. I like this. I mean, and I think we could take it further. Not not just giving your own money, but volunteering your time. You guys show up on the border. You put together the wall. You build it with your own materials. Perhaps disassemble your homes and use the home the materials from your home to put up the border wall because it's so important and it's so vital that you do it yourself without me by all possible means with all deliberate speed. And I use that deliberately. Or as Malcolm X might have said, by any means necessary. That's exact. Well, no, because that might involve taxing me. Touche. Yeah. So um, I don't know that we really need to do anything. No, let's else. go. This no. is this is the last thing we're recording. Our right before good the friend. Holiday. Yes. Yes. Do we have a, a some idiot wrote this from anybody? Because we don't. That's cool. I I don't have uh, some idiot wrote this. Actually, I do have um, what is probably like the best article title. Um, related to the Senate um, intelligence reports. Um, and it, the award for that goes to Quartz, who had Russian operatives were promoting sex toys on Instagram to sow <laughs> discord in the U.S. Um, that is not how discord works, people. Convincing Americans to buy sex toys? I can't imagine how that works that's out harmony. badly. You know? It seems, it seems like they, if, if that's what they're working towards, something is wrong. I, I do want to say about these reports, I, I perused them. I know that there may not be uh, nearly as much interest about this um, in the room, um, but I did read them um, and I did not find them enormously persuasive. The the major challenge that I have is like the subtle qualification that appears in most of the stories about this stuff somewhere near the end um, where it's hard to say exactly what effect this had. It's hard to say whether or not this had a significant impact. Uh, I would go with closer to it's nearly impossible to say, and it's almost certainly highly unlikely. And the fact that so many of these posts happen to be like things about Sandra Bland and various other things that were already news stories, it's like really hard for me to believe that this misinformation campaign is the sort of thing that could have tilted the election, however many hundreds of millions of impressions or likes it managed to generate. But I, I, I will acknowledge that it's hard to say which, if that's the case, then maybe some of the sensationalist coverage around the issue should be 
dial back just a little bit. Nate Silver uh, actually had a pretty good corrective on this, which is, you know, if you look at the number of web pages or impressions or whatever the hell they're measuring in this compared to the ocean uh-huh. um, out there, it's ridiculous. It's totally I ridiculous. This Somebody is, said it. This is, this is, as he put it, not even in the top hundred of influencers on the it's election. It's insane. Um, and it also- But everybody points out like how slim the margins were, like maybe 70,000 people spread across three states, blah, blah, blah. But so that means me scratching my balls yeah. might have affected sure. this election. <laughs> or perhaps Hillary Clinton not campaigning in some of these purple states that Barack Obama won and Bernie Sanders won. There was Could a, have had something to do with it. There was a piece written by um, George, I think George, uh, George Conway, uh, Kellyanne Conway's husband, who's a, a, a interesting lawyer. He's the he's the greatest woke Republican he's out there He's incredibly woke yeah. out there. Uh, he's actually pretty good. Uh, Neil Katyal, who is a Obama uh, administration uh, a legal guy and somebody else. They did a Washington Post thing, I think, last week in the middle of whatever Trump-Russia thing. And it was, a for me, a very persuasive column about uh, whatever kind of potential seriousness and culpability of Trump and the people around him in the Russia investigation. Right? Stop smiling at me, asshole. I can't help it. Uh, uh, but there was a paragraph in there that was just like a Camille Foster, like not just a red flag, but like a red entire stadium full of flags. Uh-huh. And, and for me, too, which was like, um, you know, we can't say how strong this, you know, influence campaign or this or you know, the <laughs> fact that Trump lied about X on the campaign trail when he was actually doing Y, all of which is true. But we do know that the election was so close, particularly in those three states. It's like, no, <laughs> no, that way madness lies. You can't keep resting on the closeness mm-hmm. of the election as the seriousness of the crime. Sure. If it's a serious crime or if it's a serious whatever you want to call it, a misrepresentation, which is absolutely true, a sack of lies, also true, mm-hmm. I think, a bunch of other stuff about it that's true and bad and wrong, great on its own, but stop tethering it to the closeness of an election. You're using results to make your analysis, yeah. which is I a classic. I think that's fraud. precisely right. Can I, can I say one one thing about like I, I know Matt that you are you know you spend a lot of time Dismissive over of at you. MSNBC. Yes. I know that you are a fan of like Empty Wheel, and Empty Wheel tends to talk a lot about the the, the investigation. I I get it, my norms, as you put it last week. I think it was last week. Yeah, it was last week that we we were talking with uh, Yesha, and you you as you put it, my norms that the, the president is flouting various norms. Um, I, I I have to acknowledge though that like when it comes to like the Flynn and Manafort of it all, the notion that the president is like he's dangling these pardons, like federal pardons, like a lot of these dudes are facing federal and state charges, state charges for which they go to jail for a very long time. It's it's odd to me that no one ever seems to note the fact that even if the president were to pardon them of those federal charges. They would still get it from no, the states people, in people, many cases. People note that, including and, and to the extent that you are talking about, like the president interfering, he can't actually stop this madness that is yeah, coming you, for those people. I think I think that you're wrong about oh. about the depiction of nobody saying this. I, I think, I'm not saying no. I think the no people, one, but, the people but who it, follow this this case mm-hmm. closely and who's uh, who I, I'm uh, interested in in following their reactions to it, they mention that all the time. I mean, okay. I disagree with the lawfare people about a lot of things, including about the Trump thing, but they mention this all the time. The case is con- – Mueller is and, – and the things around him are constructed in such a way mm. to make it pretty impervious to Trump pardoning people. I mean I think the biggest uh, likelihood is that 
of something like that happening is if and when, and I'm sure it'll happen by the time it probably happened while we're doing this podcast, <laughs> Roger Stone is charged mm-hmm. uh, for lying to Congress is what I would guess that he'll get charged for. Um, uh, so when he's charged with that, it'll be a federal thing. It'll be a Mueller thing as far as I know, not Southern District of New York. Um, he will not make a deal. He will not turn on Trump. Um, they will recommend prison time. There's a lot of speculation here, I acknowledge, but um, that there w- might be a place where Trump could pardon someone and he could expect to be pardoned with that. Is that enough for uh, obstruction of justice? I don't think so. And I, I don't think that the people who've been following this that seriously have been talking about um, his sort of uh, uh, promised or hinted at pardons as being crucial in any case to the case. I think they have mentioned, contra how you depicted it, that there's so many state crimes and federal crimes that mm-hmm. there's no way that Trump can pardon his way out of this. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, I've certainly heard them talk about the president's dangling of pardons as further evidence of him obstructing justice. Um, and I've heard it talked about by by many people, usually when they're delivering the litany of things that he's responsible for and the numerous lies that have been told by numerous people, for example. That's one of the many things that comes up. But in either case, pulling back from that, turning towards home plate here, I wanted to thank William Flusek. William is a generous soul. Oh, he's one of our best. Sent us Absolutely. like three three bottles. Um, and we are nursing, I think, the last bottle of this thing, which is like there's like apples and it's spice, a something in there. Breckenridge spiced rum, Colorado rum with spices and brown sugar, molasses, sugar, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's super uh, holiday festive. Yeah, it is. And it's medicinal. Yeah. It is totally uh, driven. Open the, your pores up. The, yeah. Well, yeah. open my pores up and driven the uh, food poisoning out of my body. Sweet. It's, uh, it's amazing. I am. Uh, I'm, I feel like I've been made whole. So thank you very much uh, for that generous gift. And there, there are more people to thank. Um, and more pleasant things to say. This may, in fact, be the last thing we record in 2018. I'm not sure. Probably won't be the last thing we release in 2018 because I still have some tricks up my sleeve. Um, but very um, last, likely the last thing we record. Yeah, but the rap album. You're you're finally gonna drop it. Yeah, no, not that. 21 Savage dropped something yesterday though. I haven't really listened to it. I don't know if it's any good. Okay. Can't say much. What was that. Dre's mystery album that he never released? Was yeah. it Detox? It was yes, Detox. Detox. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's never gonna happen. Nope. Not at all. Bye. Bye. Late. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.